Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find the show, that would simply be great. Our guest today is Jason Schumann, principal at Primary Ventures, a seed stage venture capital firm responsible for backing New York City's most promising founders. Some of their investments include Jet, Slice, Mirror, and Package Free. In college, Jason launched a direct-to-consumer footwear company that sold hand-sewn boat shoes and driving moccasins. He later went on to work at New York-based seed fund Corrigin Ventures, where he invested in several companies including Latch, LoftSmart, and Morty. Thank you, Samit Shah, for the intro, as it was such a pleasure chatting with Jason and learning about the metrics he thinks about, trends he's focused on, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's Jason. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you today? Doing fantastic, Mike. You know, excited to be chatting with you today. Well, thank you for your willingness to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Let's first start at the beginning. What attracted you to start your own footwear company and become an entrepreneur and get into entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, dating back to uh, college, actually, and I think it's kind of the same story that a lot of founders had, which is, I experienced a pain point on my own and uh, it's going to sound like an extremely fratty story, but uh, growing up in New England, I had worn boat shoes and, you know, you'd buy a brand new pair and you'd take them out of the box. And I threw them on my feet when I was down at the university of Miami. And when I went to go walk around that first day, uh, I ended up with just like these crazy blisters in the back of my heel. And, you know, you try to focus in class with those blisters on your heel and you're like, man, it's not much to pay attention to when you're, you know, your, your heel is throbbing. So, uh, you know, I spent about two years wanting to reverse engineer uh, boat shoes and make them ridiculously comfortable out of the box. And, you know, this was back in 2011. And, you know, the idea of selling direct to consumer at the time, there was really no saying, you know, there's no D2C acronym. But I had the idea to try to create boat shoes that had no break in period. We used PU foam, which is very similar to the foam that Allbirds is using today. Uh, we reconstructed the heel to make the, the shoes actually much more firm around the heel and give it more support. So it almost felt like a, a Nike running shoe or an Allbird shoe, but in boat shoe form. And then uh, we were selling them direct to consumer at a great value. And for me, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up deciding to, to invent a way to customize the shoes after they were made with a variety of logos, whether it be fraternities, colleges, yacht clubs, you know, you name it. Uh, we could do it. And that felt like the biggest differentiator to us at the time. And, you know, I haven't grown up in a family of entrepreneurs. I, I was always told to uh, to jump in feet first into the deep end. And uh, so I did it while I was in school. Really interesting to hear how you took one of your own personal pain points and, and, were, and was able to turn it into a business. We could probably do a whole episode on all your learnings from that experience. But, but what were some of the learnings? One, market timing is everything. You know, I think our market timing was great, especially because back in the day, Facebook was super cheap. But with that said, the, the two other biggest levers are execution one. And, you know, to be fair to uh, myself and my co-founders, we just did not execute super well, especially, you know, me at the end of the day is like a naive and ignorant 21 year old, you know, launching a, a footwear company. And then team. And, you know, I think bringing together absolute rock stars is ridiculously important. And it's actually something that we focus on uh, very, very deeply at Primary. 
uh, is making sure that you're surrounded by a talent. And a lot of times, you know, first time entrepreneurs think that they know what a talent is, but they don't really know what a talent is until they actually see it and get exposed to it. So that's something that we're constantly focused on over at primary is helping provide that type of a talent because it just makes your job as a founder and CEO a hundred times easier when you can bring in people that you can trust to execute on a, you know, in a big, big way. How should founders think about timing? Darcy over at Andreessen Horowitz just wrote a really thoughtful post about something called uh, product zeitgeist. It is what he calls it. And, you know, there's certainly macro tailwinds where, you know, we ask ourselves, why now? And, and that really is the fundamental timing question. So, you know, we have a portfolio company of ours called Package Free Shop, which is a uh, multi-brand retailer of non-single use plastic products. So think like anything that's extremely sustainable that you would have in your home. So, you know, Lauren Singer, who's the founder over there, you know, she, she, A, was just a sustainability influencer on her own, but that started, you know, a few years back. But, you know, she watched the ecosystem develop and she watched consumer behavior really evolve where sustainability and, and environmentally conscious decision making became a, a main driver of consumer behavior. She kind of hopped on that wave right as it was starting to swell up. And now it's something where you really see the momentum taking off. Instead of building a product, like how you can maybe think about product market fit is don't actually build the product yet. Just just run ads and see if there's any traction for the actual product if it's there. And if so, then you go out and build the product. The more you can de-risk things before you go to raise venture capital or before you go to start a company, it's absolutely critical. And I mean, the, the story behind Hims when the Atomic guys, you know, over a weekend launched Facebook ads to selling, you know, minoxidil for hair loss was absolutely incredible. And I think it just is a, is a fantastic way to highlight for people the way that either like the lean startup methodology or, you know, reading through the book, the four steps to epiphany can really highlight for a founder, like how you can de-risk your go-to-market strategy. Uh, you know, and then from a macro tailwind perspective and a timing perspective, there's all sorts of, you know, different types of shifts that are all are, that are constantly occurring, whether it be a platform shift or regulation shift or consumer behavior shift that you should be really putting an eye towards. And, you know, if you can make a list of what those things are, and, and it doesn't matter what the industry is, they usually will be impacted based on all of those changes. Totally. What attracted you, you know, being a founder and an entrepreneur to switching sides and over to venture capital? When I was 23, I think I had my like quarter life crisis. You know, growing up, I, I was somebody that I think most people saw as wanting to be an entrepreneur and was going to be an entrepreneur. I went to college wanting to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, my first startup didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. And, you know, you're sitting there at 23 years old and you're you know, looking in the mirror and you're a little bit distraught. Your, your ego is kind of taking a massive hit and, and your bank account is starting to approach zero. So I, I, I sat there and I looked at myself and I said, you know, what do I want to do next? And the first question there was, what do I want to optimize for? And candidly, I went into the, the you know, venture world and wanting to get a job in VC in a very intentional way to get back into you know, startups and launching my own company. And the decision to get into venture boiled down to you know, four key things. You know, the first thing was I could meet a bunch of different people in a bunch of different industries so I could recruit better teammates the next time around. Number two was uh, I could learn about those different industries so I could come up with an idea that wasn't perhaps a CPG related or you know, D2C related company in case that was interesting. The third was as somebody who grew up in Boston and then went to uh, college in Miami, 
I could go out and raise money easier the next time around, you know, and I didn't raise money for my first company. I bootstrapped it and raised like a small, small, small family and friends round of like 40 grand and got to market with that. And then really the last thing, which I think is the most important to highlight for me, you know, my why in life has really always been around the idea of giving confidence and the skill set and the relationships to other people to go out and achieve what they want to go achieve. And in venture capital, you get this really, you know, unique opportunity where you're constantly meeting with smart people and really driven people on a day-to-day basis. And whether you invest in them or not, ideally you can add value to them. And, you know, there's a, there's a big pay it forward mentality that not only occurs in the startup world, but was also given to me, I think, at a really young age by my family and a lot of other people in my life. And that's something that I've tried to go, you know, day in and day out working at primary and even at my job before really showing and, and exemplifying. That makes sense why you transitioned. And uh, so I, I have to ask the question then, are you are you at all thinking about going back to becoming an entrepreneur? Maybe one day. I, I think uh, the, the, the lesson learned, you know, from Category 5 was, which was my first startup, was that you really need to be passionate about what you're doing. And, you know, now that I'm on the other side of the table in venture, uh, I actually probably come up with ideas more than I did when I was younger. And they're probably much better ideas, but oftentimes they're much more uh, a capitalist like a thinking where, you know, I recognize that maybe there's a marketplace that needs to be built in X, Y, and Z industry. And, you know, am I really the person to build that? Like, do I have founder market fit? Do I have an unfair advantage here? And if the answer is no, you know, oftentimes it's like, I shouldn't be the one chasing that, but maybe we can find the right person who would want to work on something like that. Or we can find a company that's already in that space with our thesis that we can invest in. And I can kind of hop along you know, for the ride in just a different manner. But uh, I, I would tell you that at some point in life, most likely uh, probably 20 plus years down the line, I will start something. I also just don't know if it's going to be something that I want to raise venture for. So I guess from your learnings and thinking about, you know, founder market fit, what is some advice when those that are looking to start a B2C company have that kind of internal battle in figuring out do they have founder market fit? What types of qualities should they be looking for in themselves to make the leap? Qualities for consumer companies are difficult. You know, it, it, on one hand, uh, you could say, did the person experience the pain point or the problem themselves? And that is certainly one way to think about it. And I, I, I think that's a valid way to come up with an idea. And usually, you know, if you've experienced the pain point, especially if it's deeply personal to you, it's something that you should go after. With that said, I think, you know, oftentimes we're looking for founders that understand distribution. You know, distribution is just so critical these days. And it doesn't matter if it's like retail or, you know, e-commerce and customer acquisition. You know, I think the people and the teams uh, more specifically that we're most comfortable backing are those that have understood uh, go-to-market strategies and acquiring customers at scale. Because, you know, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners are becoming far more aware of these days, it is becoming so much harder to acquire customers efficiently. And so, you know, in, unless you've really gone out of your way to either 
surround yourself with experts or co-founded the company with experts, you ideally better be an expert in distribution because too many founders think about product early on and not enough about distribution. And if you don't have the latter, you own a business. I see now a few like Twitter posts about in terms of like the ratio you should be thinking about or the importance of distribution versus the actual product itself. I think one I heard like 80% distribution, 20% product. Where do you, I know obviously they go hand in hand, but what do you think is more important? I will say, I think you and I both could name some companies that are very large D2C brands that have okay products, but really good brands and really good, you know, distribution. And I, I think if you can nail the brand and you can nail the distribution, you can be a good company. If you have a great product and you can nail the brand and distribution, you will have a multi-billion dollar company. And I think that's like the fundamental difference at the end of the day. Like you can catch a wave with an okay product and, and grow a little bit. But if you want to be able to ride that wave all the way in for a long time, and that includes driving significant word of mouth, you really do need to have a good product that people are going to talk about. And, and also it really helps if people can recognize that product and it's constantly out and about and in their face. You know, there's a book called Contagious that a, a Wharton professor had written and which highlights a lot of the reasons like why pro certain products go viral. And I think that, you know, that's a really good book for people to read to start to understand, you know, what separates uh, certain companies from others because uh, when you look back, especially over, over the last five to 10 years, there's been many startups in many categories, but there's been very few that have been successful and certain ones are taking off for certain reasons as well. What makes seed investing so interesting to you and why is that your personal focus? Seed, seed investing is interesting to me because like the people. <laughs> At the end of the day, I absolutely love the people part of this business. I love like hearing about people's vision for the type of company they want to build and what motivates them to wake up every morning and to go to work. I think that as you start to hear people's personal stories and what they've overcome, uh, you know, in order to get to this point and how they want to, you know, kind of take things to the next level. I think that that's an incredible part of this job. It's also one of those stages where you can work pretty closely with the founder and crafting that vision and and even expanding that vision, you know, over time. And the value add, I would say, at the, at the seed stage that you can provide a founder with feels significantly, and maybe that maybe I'm wrong, honestly, but it feels significantly larger than most other stages where companies are usually uh, already kind of skiing down the mountain versus getting off the chairlift here. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where not only for myself, but I think, you know, the rest of the team over at Primary where, you know, all of us have operated or started companies before, and, you know, we're deeply, deeply passionate about adding value to founders. And, and we feel like the most value add can happen in those first, you know, 18 to 24 months, which are extremely formative for a company's life. So what are some qualities that you look for in a founder? We look for a few things. One, we look at, can they sell? Can they sell stock? Can they sell people? And can they sell their product? So, you know, selling stock, we believe, you know, fundraising is an absolutely critical part of a founder and CEO's job. So the ability to articulate a story, tell a narrative and really go to market to raise money over time can be, relatively speaking, a barrier to entry, maybe not a really strong one, but it's a barrier to entry and it's a necessity. So that's a skill set. Two is, can they sell people? I mean, going back to the conversation earlier, we think people is absolutely critical. And, you know, the ability to go sell people to work for you, you know, can you outkick your coverage and really get people on board to working for you, whether it be like a, a growth person from a company that's making 2x more than they're going to make if they go to work for you. I mean, those are the 
the you know specific moves that at the end of the day could make or break uh, what you end up becoming. Uh, and then the last thing around selling product that goes back to the distribution pro uh, part of the conversation before. As far as like KPIs and metrics that we're looking for, you know. And by the way, just to one other thing on that is you know grit and resourcefulness is also something that I'm constantly looking for in founders. Like I'll, I'll actually ask them about uh, their background, their childhood, what it was like growing up, and then the process they took in order to get to this specific point, this specific meeting with the company that they're starting. Did they meet with experts? Did they do customer development like you asked? Did they test Facebook ads? If they did test Facebook ads, you know, what was the language in there that they were using? What was the most like successful ad? What did it look like? What did it sound like? What was resonating? What were the key insights, you know, from those conversations? And then metrics wise, I, you know, we're focused on a lot of different things these days, but, um, you know, LTV to CAC has been something that people have constantly been talking about over the years. Um, we're actually more focused on payback period. You know, payback period is uh, takes into account more about like the capital efficiency of a business or, or really is like a, an indicator of capital efficiency. And, you know, for us as a seed firm, especially in, in consumer, we identify that, you know, not every company is going to be a multi-billion dollar exit. So, you know, if you can have a sub six month, really sub three month payback period, or, you know, be making money on that first purchase, especially depending on if you, uh, if you have high repeat behavior or not, that's absolutely critical for us because then you don't need to raise a ton of money in order to uh, pump it all into marketing. I don't think we've talked too much about payback period on the show. So thanks for diving into that. Those that work at big corporations and want to become early employees at uh, early stage startups, what should be their due diligence process when evaluating opportunities? So I think, you know, if you're, if you're going to evaluate moving to an early stage startup, I think there's a few things that you really want to consider. One is, you know, you need to make sure that the people that you're getting on the bus with are the people you want to ride with because you're not going to be the driver at the end of the day. So, you know, you, you got to go ahead and back channel the founder. You know, you probably want to talk to people that they worked with prior at their old job. You may even want to talk to their investors. You know, what was the investor's thesis um, when they invested in this company? And, you know, making sure that there's alignment between the founder and the investors, I think, is actually a really interesting thing, you know, where you can go ahead and say to the founder, you know, you're a seed company, you want to go raise a Series A, what does that look like? Like, where is our focus over the next 12 to 18 months? Then if you ask the same question to the VC, <laughs> you want to make sure those two answers are, are very aligned. Um, so that's another big one. And then the, the last thing I would probably touch on is you may want to ask some of those questions that about, you know, LTV to CAC and customer acquisition costs and traction to date and then repeat behavior. You know, if you're in a category where you've got either, you know, high or low AOV, but um, you have a high repeat behavior, that's a really exceptional sign of product market fit and a company that should be prime, prime for scale. All great advice. Thank you. How should uh, startups think about online customer acquisition costs in today's climate? I think it's really important to take an experimentation uh, lens to running your company. You know, uh, one, there's certainly product-driven growth where, you know, word of mouth and referral can come from within the product. And I think that that is an incredible unlock for a lot of companies. If you look at referrals, like Blue Apron certainly was uh, was the gold standard there in the early days with kind of like give a box, get a box type of deal. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think most companies are still using Facebook. The question is, you know, what is going to be that next channel when 
you know, you spent as much as you can on Facebook and it's no longer an efficient channel. I've heard everything from, you know, using Hulu to outdoor advertising. I mean, if you come to New York and you've been on the subway, you probably realize how many venture-backed D2C companies there are. But, you know, there, there's certainly, there, there's campus rep programs nowadays and all sorts of other things. So, you know, to me, when, you, when you're pitching a seed firm, the one thing that I would really make sure you can highlight is the thesis that you have about like what you're building, but then the sub theses that you ultimately want to uh, prove out during or really post this financing round before you go and raise a series A, because if you have those sub theses and you have the experiments you want to run to to prove them one way or the other, and it's okay to be wrong, but as long as you can figure out then a different part of that subthesis to figure out and what success looks like in proving it, those are the really important parts when it comes to focusing your business around certain things. Great advice. Why does primary only invest in New York companies? Yeah. Uh, there's a few very quick answers to that. One, you know, we have a thesis that uh, there will be multiple billion dollar companies that come out of New York every single year. Um, you know, and we want to make sure that we're in those companies. But two, we think that, you know, you have to earn the right to work with the best founders. Uh, and that in order to earn that right, you need to be value add. And the only way that you can be value add is if you're focused. And for us, focus means New York. It means seed only. It means leading and co-leading only. And it means having a portfolio impact team that is twice the size of our investment team. You know, we have three operating partners now, um, you know, ranging from the former CFO of Plated to an incredible like, chief people officer type uh, operating partner, Kat Hernandez. And they really ha- have helped us, you know, the saying internally is we bring a bazooka to a knife fight, um, you know, where, where for those 18 months, you know, post-investment, we're really trying to make them feel like 18 months and be the biggest value add on the cap table. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to talent, which we think is a network effect business, it's really hard to do if you're spread across multiple geos. Um, so now, you know, with three, call it two, three full-time recruiters on our team, uh, we have a database of thousands of the best operators in New York City. And they're not just people whose names we've plugged into that database. They're people who we've back-channeled and made sure are, you know, legitimately some of the best operators out there. And we try to help our companies with hiring that way. That's excellent. So I know at Primary, you either co-lead or lead rounds. If you were to tell a company, we love what you're doing, we want to invest in your product, but we need a lead, that's not a good sign, right? We we would never say that. <laughs> we would, uh, I, I hated that. I hated that even when like I didn't lead. Like I wanted to commit to you one way or the other, or I wanted to be honest about it. But uh, I, I will pass like instead of telling you that because like I don't have any excuse. And, and you know, at the end of the day, this business, especially now, because the ecosystem's changed so much here in New York. It's very competitive. Funds have increased in size. We all have ownership minimums. My job is to find you first and to build conviction first and then to get to term sheet first. And, you know, by doing that and really taking the lens of, you know, like I ask myself a question when I see Dex today, which is, am I willing to cancel my meetings tomorrow to meet with this person? If the answer is no, I'm probably not meeting with the right person. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really am trying to be more critical about that because everybody else is moving way faster than they ever have before. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts about that. So what's some advice for founders that live in secondary and tertiary markets? I went to school at the University of Miami. I was in a, a secondary tertiary market. And, you know, I feel like the biggest difference between 
the primary markets and those other markets really are just like the people you're surrounded by. Luckily, like the access to information because of people like you, you know, there's there's a democratization of access to information. So as much as you can, certainly listen to as many of those podcasts and read as much as you can, but also like reach out to other founders, reach out to VCs for advice, you know, and, and try to pick people's brains as much as possible because as much as the startup and venture world and these primary markets is kind of BS, you know, you do need to learn how to play the game. And there's certain parts of the game, whether it's prioritizing certain KPIs or, or spending in certain ways that have been proven over time to create really strong companies. And I think, you know, if you do want to raise venture funding too, there's a little bit of a lingo that, you know, people like to see based on pattern recognition, uh, that if you can speak the, if you can speak the language and you can walk the walk and you can have the metrics, then it becomes significantly easier to raise money. Right. I think that's I think that's great advice. What are some changes in consumer behavior, consumer trends that you're most excited and focused on looking at investment opportunities? So going back to the kind of product zeitgeist fit, I think one, you know, you're you're seeing a whole new generation of entrepreneurs pop up at the local level that aren't building, you know, call it venture-backed businesses. But there's this trend of uh, business in a box. I think it's a it's a term that was coined either by Alex Tossig or, or the folks or the twins over at CRV. But it talks about, you know, basically building what is a next generation franchise or uh, helping acquire customers for a local business using a common brand and then handling the back office administration for, you know, said brand or local service provider. I find that to be very appealing. I think, you know, historically local service providers haven't been great at customer acquisition and they really don't love doing the back office stuff. So anything you can do there, I find fascinating. With that said, you know, we've invested in a variety of companies that do that in a little bit of a different way. We have one company called Dandy that acquires patients for invisible aligner treatment online to be treated by local dentists. They they send them to the local dentist who takes the scan and the x-ray. And then thereafter, we handle it via, uh, we handle the, the checkups via remote ortho. What I find interesting about that business model, which can be done in different industries, is we make our margin off of the aligners. And then the dentists love it because it's lead gen for them. You know, like they're getting new patients off this thing and they believe it's safer than the smile drug clubs and the candidates of the world. So they're absolutely in love with it. You know, another big trend for us that we're looking at, you know, people are moving away uh, at pretty rapid rates from religion. And I think that that leaves a hole in a lot of people's lives, uh, whether it be with community or purpose. uh, And they're trying to find something that can help replace that both, you know, IRL, you know, in real life and and digitally. So figuring out something that can fill those voids to make people uh, feel more whole, um, you know, from a community perspective, but also mentally, because, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of anxiety going on in the world today, a lot of uh, mental illness. And I think, uh, People could use some good alternatives and good solutions there. Absolutely. Well, you've you've brought up two trends that I don't think we've heard yet. What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think you know there's there's really two things. One is the ability to invest in more mass market stuff would be uh, would be awesome. You know, it's it's very challenging at times to invest in certain products, especially right now that are more mass market because of the fact that customer acquisition costs are going up so much and, you know, contribution margin, we're looking for like 100 to $200 worth of contribution margin in the first 12 months when acquiring a customer. And if your price point is super low, 
that's really difficult to do, you know, especially at least acquiring customers online. So unless you're going to get a lot of free advertising because the value of your product is insanely high to the consumer or, you know, you're showing incredible uh, repeat rates in LTV, it's one of those things that, you know, I think most VCs just tend to invest in stuff that's for a, a higher end consumer. And I'd love to change that. And I think the other thing is, you know, more diversity uh, in venture capital uh, over the next five to 10 years, I think is just absolutely critical because, you know, uh, you have decision makers and people in the industry that are not diverse and therefore they're investing in things that uh, maybe aren't as diverse as well. Um, you know, and, and, and I think adding a different perspective uh, into the conversation is, critical and should be something that every single partnership focuses on. Absolutely. I think those are two excellent points. What's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? Personally would be the book Attached, which is about attachment theory, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it it essentially describes three different uh, core attachment styles and society that people have in relationships, specifically relationships with their significant other. I thought that is a, uh, it's an incredible book for anybody that, uh, is in their mid twenties and in a in a relationship and or and or getting into a relationship. I think the one that actually I would argue is the second book, which is both personal and professional, is a book called Think and Grow Rich, which uh, ironically is a much older book. It was written in like the thirties by Napoleon Hill, and he followed around the top innovators and entrepreneurs of his time, really the titans of industry, and he identified the key threads amongst them all. And I think that the uh, the quote unquote secrets that are that are shared in that book have certainly helped guide me in my uh, my professional career and, and also personally as well in uh, becoming a human being that, uh, that that tries to learn from other people constantly and, and sets goals and, and creates plans around those goals to achieve them. Very cool. I'll certainly have to check out both. What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in didn't and in retrospect, wish you did. Man, my anti- 